This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. How about that Caitlin Clark, the Iowa player who just broke the all-time women's scoring record in college basketball. She is amazing. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about her. In fact, it's even said that she's helping the economy because wherever her team goes, there are lines outside and every game is sold out. And, and she just seems like a genuinely nice person. So you'll be hearing a lot more about her. Now, here's a yarn about Paul McCartney, who for more than 50 years has been missing the bass he bought when the Beatles were launching. It's called a Hofner Violin Bass, and it was played on all the Beatles' original hits, All My Loving, I Saw Her Standing There, and then somehow it got lost or stolen. And it's a great sentimental attachment. Obviously, he's had a lot of bass guitars since then. Uh, one of the all-time great bassists, by the way. Um, and so the word went out from some of his fans, could we track this down? Who has it? Where in the world was it? Well, it turns out it didn't go very far. It was in the loft of a family home in East Sussex, England. The family reported the guitar after a couple of journalists, as well as a guitar expert, started this campaign, they turned it over, was authenticated by the manufacturer, has been returned to McCartney, and a statement was posted, Paul is incredibly grateful to all those involved. That's a long time for something to be lost. All right, this is going to seem uh, very light, but I have a reason, personal reason, for telling you that banana pudding, chocolate fudge brownie, salted caramel... Cherry Garcia, Dr. Pepper Float, and dozens of other flavors are now out there and getting popular. And the story starts off with a couple looking for chocolate chip ice cream, but hard to find. And his wife, on a recent trip to, I don't know, some supermarket, Safeway, uh, said, here it is. But then it turned out it was chocolate chocolate chip. Vanilla chocolate chip ice cream used to be one of the top sellers in the world, has fallen out of favor. And the reason I'm telling you this is my first job when I was still in high school was working a couple of blocks away at the local Baskin Robbins. So I had to know all 31 flavors at that time. And when you scoop the ice cream into a cone, the owner was very particular. You had to weigh it and make sure you were putting in 3.2 ounces, wherever it was. In addition to the uh, minimum wage salary... We also got a free cone a day, but again, it had to be carefully weighed. And the thing that I was into at that time was mint chocolate chip. So it is funny to see that vanilla chocolate chip is uh, popularity's melting, shall we say. Uh, but it's been losing ground, according to the story, to cookies and cream and chocolate chip cookie dough. And I get it. Those are better. <laughs> Those are really good innovations. 
So it's now no longer in the top 10. You can still find it, but in some markets, it's only served, uh, sold, I should say, in certain times of year. Okay, to some people's surprise, but not mine, since I've been predicting this for months, Joe Manchin is not running for president. I will not be seeking a third-party run. I will not be involved in a presidential run, the West Virginia senator said. And I, you know, I've totally called this, like, you know, that he would he would flirt with it. He would hype it. He would use it to get attention. He was involved in discussions with the No Labels group, you know, run a centrist candidate and basically draw votes from Joe Biden and elect Donald Trump. Um but the weird thing is, in just the last few days, he'd been talking publicly about, well, we might, uh, I might have Mitt Romney as a running mate, maybe one or two other people, you know, if he went, mounted a third-party independent bid. But no. And political reports that Manchin says, I am convinced you can't fix it, meeting the nation's problems, from Washington. And I've tried for 14 years. This will be the least productive, most destructive Congress we've ever had. People just want to get S done. I want to get it done, too. So you'll be hearing a lot less about Manchin uh, once his Senate term expires. And George Santos is suing Jimmy Kimmel. This is such a delicious story. And Santos just always seems to be able to get into the news, as I mentioned on Media Buzz yesterday. And by the way, happy President's Day. Most of you enjoying a three-day weekend. And if you didn't see Media Buzz yesterday, we have all the major segments online. You can check my Facebook or Twitter as a quick way of finding them. Um, and Santos, uh, after his Long Island House seat was flipped uh, and won by a Democrat who was a former congressman there, um, he sent a nasty... Uh, he posted a nasty note on a group chat with some of the leading local Republicans who would help expel him from the House and basically, you know, dropped some F-bombs and just was basically venting his spleen. But now suing Jimmy Kimmel for allegedly misusing his cameo clips. So, you know, Santos does these video requests for $500 a pop. All right, everybody's got to make a living. And Kimmel, according to this complaint, anonymously got Santos to do by, you know, using different names or whatever, various cameo videos, such as congratulating a woman for successfully cloning her schnauzer named Adolf, as well as a man for winning a competitive ground beef eating contest. So that not only, according to this suit, um, violated Cameo's terms of service and Santos's copyright, but he did use fake aliases. Quote, for the purpose of capitalizing on and ridiculing Santos's gregarious personality. And he bragged about it on the show. Okay, I'll let the lawyers sort that one out. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number one. This broke late Friday after the last time we spoke. By now, the world knows that in the civil fraud trial in New York, Donald Trump was fined $355 million by Judge Arthur Angoran, 
who Trump has repeatedly attacked as a crooked judge, maybe laying the groundwork for an appeal. You know, you can argue about the extent of the fraud or not, but when you throw in, when you add that to the penalties against his two adult sons who are running the company, Don Jr. and Eric, it's almost the $370 million that New York Attorney General Letitia James asked for. So it, it just seems so excessive, the kind of, you know, wild, eye-popping figure that could well be lowered on appeal. Not only that, but Trump and his two oldest sons barred from running any firm in New York State for three years. And there's a lot of talk about how he's going to pay this, plus the $83 million judgment in favor of E. Jean Carroll, and will he have to liquidate some properties? And the suit was also against the Trump organization, which right now has no CFO or controller. So uh, the Washington Post uh, quotes a uh, law professor as saying, there is no one at the financial helm. There's no CFO, no controller, and now you don't have Eric Trump, Donald Trump Jr., or Donald Sr. running it. So this, of course, was about accusations that the Trump organization inflated the costs of its real estate properties in order to get a better rate on loans. Trump can remain the owner, but he doesn't really have control. There's a, what was referred to on TV as a babysitter, a financial monitor, uh, or perhaps two of them, that now have to oversee spending by the Trump organization. $355 million. I mean, it's just, I, I know Donald Trump's a billionaire, and I know he can sell off a couple of properties if he needs to, to pay all this, but it's still just a shocking verdict. And, oh, here's Bloomberg, Bloomberg Billionaires Index, estimating Trump's net worth at just over $3 billion with about $600 million in cash assets. And that's the key thing is how much available cash does he have? Obviously, he won't have to pay this full thing while he appeals, but he will have to, I think within 30 days, put down some kind of bond for a sizable fraction of it. Trump, writing on Truth Social, the amount was outrageous based on nothing other than having built a great company. An attorney for the Trump sons called the decision a gross injustice. But here's the thing I want to mention. Donald Trump had a pretty good point when he said there were no victims here. Usually in a big fraud case, you've got, you know widows who were fleeced or something like that. The banks that loaned Trump this money, they made many millions of dollars. They're not unhappy. And there is some wiggle room and there's always these caveats in the financial statements about, you know, ultimately there's a subjective determination of how much a hotel or condo building or golf course is worth. Now, I'm not saying the company operated flawlessly and according to the strictest ethics, but there is also this caveat about, you know, banks should do their own due diligence. So the question is, 
did, did, was this a politically motivated prosecution by a state attorney general who ran for office saying she would investigate Donald Trump, she would get Donald Trump. Now, on MSNBC, as I noted on the air yesterday, I mean, they were just so thrilled. They were just bringing all these guests who were just reveling in this. Everyone saying the same thing. This is long overdue. This ruins his reputation. This uh, blackens his brand. Uh, he deserved it. Uh, he, he won't be able to pay it, or he may struggle to pay it. One exception to her credit was MSNBC host Katie Turr. Who said this? Who at least raised the question that under this law, it has only been used to ban someone doing business. I mean, that's almost like a corporate death penalty when it's been shown that somebody was hurt. Say you're selling cosmetics that are poisoning you. There's somebody that was hurt there. The cosmetics company gets banned. Is this fair to go after Donald Trump like this in this environment is my question. I seem to recall that our guest thought it was perfectly fair, but at least she raised the question. So uh, here's more from Trump on Truth Social. Justice system in New York State is under assault by partisan, deluded, biased judges and prosecutors. Racist, corrupt, AG, Tish James, has been obsessed with getting Trump for years and used crooked New York State judge Engeron to get an illegal, un-American judgment against me, my family, and my tremendous business. I helped New York City during its worst of times. And now, while it's overrun with violent Biden migrant crime, the radicals are doing all they can to kick me out. It's a complete and total sham. No victims, no damages, no complaints. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Story two. We also had on Friday, I lost track of how many times I had to rewrite the show, the tragic and heartbreaking death of Alexei Navalny in this Arctic prison, this gulag, operated by Russia. And as you know, President Biden said this was the work of Putin, that Putin is to blame for killing Navalny. I have no doubt about that. Remember, just in terms of background, that there already had been, uh, at the Kremlin's hands, the poisoning of Alexei Navalny, who, who never lost his sense of humor in fighting the Russian dictatorship. And that had almost killed him. And when he recovered from that, he decided in 2021 voluntarily to return to Russia. He and his family had been living in exile. He could have had a very nice life in exile. 
And he felt compelled to go back, even though many of his friends and, and allies worried that he would wind up dead, worried that he would wind up in prison. And that, of course, is exactly what happened. So the question becomes, why did he go back? New York Times says even his prison guards, turning off their recording devices, asked why he had come back. Uh, he wrote in a post uh, just last month, marking the third anniversary of uh, being behind bars, I don't want to give up either my country or my beliefs. I cannot betray either the first or the second. If your beliefs are worth something, you must be willing to stand up for them and, if necessary, make some sacrifices. For many Russians, says this piece, those who knew him and those who did not, the issue was more complex. Some of them considered it almost a classical Greek tragedy. The hero, knowing that he is doomed, returns home anyway because, well, if he didn't, he would not be the hero. Navalny's motto was that there was no reason to fear Putin's authoritarian government. He wanted to put that into practice. Rather than sinking into irrelevancy in exile. That decision won him new respect and followers. He continued to attack the Kremlin from his prison cell. Former Kremlin speechwriter quoted as saying, Navalny was about action. For him, politics was action, not just democracy and theory, like it is for many in the Russian opposition. They are content to sit abroad, speaking and speaking and speaking without doing anything with their hands. For him, that was unbearable. But you know, not only did he risk his own life and ultimately sacrifice his life for this cause, he left his family behind in exile, his wife and children. Some are calling him a beacon in the darkness. You know, this is not just the case where he sort of keeled over suddenly. Uh, The Daily Mail reports there were bruises on his body. He had seemed in relatively good health the day before, joking with judges at a hearing. And this sort of seals the deal. The Kremlin still hasn't released his body. His mother would like her son's body to give him a proper funeral. Oh, they use some, you know, wrinkle in the law to say, oh, they're conducting their own investigation so they can't turn over the body. We all know what happened. Remember, this is a regime where the former head of the Wagner Group, which fought sometimes independently from Putin, against Ukraine, wound up dying in a plane crash where other Putin opponents have mysteriously fallen out of windows and been killed. This is a regime that kills its political opponents. That's what Vladimir Putin does. And that's why there's some criticism of Donald Trump for not saying anything to this point about Navalny's death not wanting to offend Putin, not wanting to get into this tragic situation? I don't know. But here's an interesting update from the Times. Navalny's widow, 
whose name is Yulia Navalnaya, released a video on his YouTube channel saying she would carry on his work. She asked his followers to honor his legacy, to fight more desperately and furiously than ever before. I know it feels impossible to do anymore, but we have to. To come together in one strong fist and strike with it at this maddened regime, at Putin, at his friends and his bandits in uniform, all these thieves and killers who have crippled our country. In killing Alexei, she says, this is very moving, Putin killed half of me, half of my heart, and half of my soul. But I have another half left, and it is telling me I have no right to give up. And a spokeswoman, by the way, says that one of the lawyers was literally pushed out from the morgue in the Arctic where there was an attempt to reclaim Alexei Navalny's body. Quote, they lie, buy time for themselves, and do not even hide it. Um, Here's another wartime item from a long time ago. A long piece by a historian in the Washington Post. On the evening of March 21st, 1864, so that's during the Civil War, um, on the Rappahannock River in Virginia, George Washington's army was camped out there. A fight broke out in the mess tents between two army civilian employers. One was John Alexander and the other was Moses Robinette, who claimed that he was attacked. They, one or two of them were both drunk. <laughs> Excuse me. One or both of them were drunk. And to defend himself... Robinette took out his, his pen knife, his pocket knife, and the other man was bleeding from knife wounds, and Robinette was charged with attempted murder. And he was stuck in a remote prison, not in the Arctic, but near what is now Florida. Um, other army officers who thought that he was unfairly charged and thought he was a, you know exemplary um, soldier filed an appeal which got to the White House, which ordered the transcript and a review of the case, and Abraham Lincoln pardoned Moses Robinette. And the reason I'm telling you this is, this is the great-great-great-grandfather of Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., So President Lincoln pardoned an ancestor of Joe Biden's. It's just wild. It's worth reading. It's just fascinating with all the detail. All right, number three. Donald Trump, this is a Maggie Haberman special in the Times, perhaps with other reporters, uh, has privately told advisors and allies that he likes the idea of a 16-week national abortion ban with three exceptions, rape, incest, life of the mother according to people with direct knowledge of Trump's uh, discussions. Now, he, he hasn't taken a firm position on what the abortion restriction should be. 
since Roe v. Wade was overturned, but he certainly has taken credit, political credit, for the end of Roe because he appointed three conservative justices who formed the majority that got rid of that 50-year-old ruling. And he doesn't really want to talk about it publicly, according to this story, because he doesn't want to risk alienating social conservatives. When talking about uh, possible VP candidates, Trump asks, are they okay on abortion? He instantly dismisses them if they're not in favor, at least of the three exceptions, which he thinks is a losing stance for the Republican Party. In one conversation, he said, know what I like about 16? It's even. It's four months. Now, Trump would be trying to sort of satisfy social conservatives because there would be a national ban after four months. But also, you know, more moderate Republicans and independent voters who want some limits. Right now, abortion is currently banned before 16 weeks, in other words, earlier, earlier than 16 weeks, in 20 states, including Florida, where Trump now lives. So this would basically restrict abortion rights in the remaining 30 states where it is legal beyond that point. Trump used to be pro-choice back when he was a Democrat. And he got in trouble in the, in the 2016 campaign telling Chris Matthews there needed to be some form of punishment for women who had illegal abortions. And then they kind of walked it back. And this interesting footnote. A 16-week ban wouldn't end many abortions. Nearly 94% of abortions happened before 13 weeks of pregnancy. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Number four, I've talked a lot on the show and on this podcast about uh, Fonnie Willis and her last-minute decision to testify. Ruth Marcus, a lawyer and liberal columnist for the Washington Post, an editorial board member, she said, that watching this, it was like my cousin Vinny meets Real Housewives of Atlanta. Equal parts bad lawyering, lawyering and literal hangout behavior, more suited to reality TV. In the end, Willis probably isn't going to be ousted from overseeing the 2020 election interference case in Georgia, and she shouldn't be. Her mesmerizing performance may have turned the tide in her favor. Also helped that the lead lawyer on the other side seemed incapable of eliciting basic factual information from witnesses. Uh, so the, as you may know, there was one former friend and DA employee who said, look, they began this relationship in 2019 because she saw them you know, kissing and hugging. And, but... Bonnie Willis and her boyfriend, Nathan Wade, who she named to be the lead special prosecutor in the Trump case, they kept coming up with, well, we, we weren't dating then and we were, in, and we were only dating then. And uh, yeah, we, we did it and we started dating in 2022. But, you know, the marriage, Nathan Wade was married, that was dead and then they described all the vacations from Aruba to Belize to the Bahamas 
not just one, but two cruises. But, you know, Fonnie Willis said, look, I had kept lots of cash in the house and I would pay half of it by giving that money to Nathan. But no, I don't have any receipts. And even Ruth Marcus says, look, the performance tarnished Willis. While she portrayed herself as the victim of lies, she is primarily the victim of her own bad judgment. Even assuming there was nothing going on between the two of them before she brought him into the DA's office. The notion that you shouldn't be sleeping with your subordinate never seems to have entered Willis's mind. Don't expose your office, much less a high-profile case, to snickering and worse. And that brings me to story number five. I wish I could have gotten this on the show yesterday. There's just a lot of things that don't make it when you have to deal in the space of one hour, minus commercials, with Alexei Navalny's death, Trump versus Biden on NATO um, and his, you know, the Russia can do whatever the hell it wants to, to countries that don't pay their full share. Um, the $355 million judgment against Trump, the indictment of an FBI informant in the Hunter Biden case who had been touted as the star witness, the pressuring by President Biden's lawyers of the Justice Department and ultimately Merrick Garland to have Robert Hur water down and take some things out, such as damaging statements about his memory, from that special counsel's report. Merrick Garland wanted no part of it, and I think he saved Biden's lawyers, from, Biden from his lawyers, because uh, that would have leaked in about 12 seconds. And Biden, who talks so much about respecting the independence of DOJ, would not be seen that way. Can you imagine the nuclear media reaction to a report by his own Justice Department presided over by his own attorney general that was watered down. And then we had the bizarre story about the Republican congressman who essentially made public the secret Russian space weapon, thought to be a nuclear-powered anti-satellite weapon. And that caused a huge stink. And we also had the impeachment of Alejandro Mayorkas on the second try and the flipping of George Santos' seat to former Democratic congressman from that Long Island district, Tom Swazi. But here's what I would have liked to have said. Matt Taibbi, you know his name from the work that he did on the Twitter files, independent journalist, has now posted screenshots of what's described as rather unhinged messages he got from Elon Musk. Elon Musk recruited Matt Taibbi, as well as Barry Weiss and others, to dig through the files of the previous management and publish whatever they wanted. But then what happened is uh, Taibi decided to open up for business on Substack, which Musk views as a competitor, even though you know Twitter or X uh, dwarfs Substack. And he said, since Elon Musk published parts of these conversations, I may well include others. I may as well include others. I was under a blanket search ban at one point, and a lot of my 1.9 million followers still don't see my content. So, safe it to say, relations have broken down between the two men. So, in a message from last April, Taibi asked Musk whether he was being shadow banned 
following Musk's crackdown on Substack. We went on lockdown after discovering that Substack had stolen a massive amount of our data to pre-populate their Twitter ripoff, said Musk. Looks like there is still a blanket search ban meeting on you. Should be fixed by tomorrow. He added, going forward, tweets with Substack will not appear in For You. This is the, how would you describe it? Uh, It's what X decides to serve up to you. Include some of your followers, but maybe many others. If you don't like that, you can use the, whatever the other tab is called. Your followers. Um, And, uh, you know, uh, unless it is paid advertising, just like Facebook, Insta, etc. So, in other words, you you say, hey, I just wrote about this for Substack. You include a link. That's, nobody will be able to find it. Taibi said, Elon... I've repeatedly declined to criticize you and have nothing to do with your beef with Substack. Is there a reason why I'm being put in the middle of things? That really seems crazy. To which the world's richest man replied, you are dead to me. Please get off Twitter and just stay on Substack. Sounds like a good line from a mob movie, no? Their relationship deteriorated after Taibi started writing for Substack. Must blocked all the links. So now, says Taibi, or this was his protest. Oh, he's called the uh, X the worst, worse than ever. Supposed free speech champion Elon Musk has decided to suppress this account forever instead of just talking to me. Elon Musk is uncomfortable around people who aren't afraid of him and wants to prove he can hurt my business instead of just talking to me, even if it means suppressing access to news he thinks is important. So I guess I would sum up by saying that relationship hasn't gone well. It hasn't aged well. And look, while you could make a case that Musk is entitled to keep a competitor's links off of his site, which he represents as being the policy of other social network giants, um, to say, this was private, it's now public, to a guy who did a lot of hard digging for him into the Twitter files, made a lot of news. You're dead to me? Well, look, he didn't get to be so rich by, by being a pushover. So you can decide who you want to side with, but I think it's a shame that it ended up this way. Nice to have you back. There was so much to catch up on from just this weekend, and I hope you're enjoying the current weekend, that I had to leave a few things out. Even on the podcast, we can't get to everything unless you want to spend uh, two, three hours with me. But barring that, have a great day on President's Day. See you tomorrow with more Buzzmeter. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.